Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Each morning, as I walk to Arlington Street Church, I pass five houses of worship between my home and the tea station. The first on my daily course is an old yellow and brown house with peeling paint and a well-loved exterior. It is the home to a plucky, funky, adventurous Jewish congregation. Next door and a little down the street, there is a warm and well-loved congregational church. Its pride flag flies overhead, just underneath a banner which reads, God is still speaking. As I pass by in the mornings, I like to read their wayside pulpit and see what this next Sunday's sermon will be entitled. Down a bit and across the street, there stands a a large edifice of brown stone built to look to me like a castle. It is the home to a United Methodist congregation. I have never seen anyone go in, and I have never seen anyone go out. It makes me wonder a little bit about what this church looks like to someone who walks by it every day. But I do hear the bells from time to time, playing tunes to songs I do not know the words to. I was not raised Methodist. But they are tunes which are familiar to me from having been raised Unitarian Universalist. And from time to time, I find myself humming them the rest of my way to this place. The last two congregational buildings are both Baptist. One is an American Baptist church, a short brown building with a very neat and clean lawn. When I walk home on Sunday afternoons, I often see children playing on the clean grass. And the other is a French Caribbean Baptist church. It is always busy. When I walk by in the early Sunday morning, I hear the loud, booming voice in French of the preacher coming from inside. And when I walk home in the late afternoon, I encounter hundreds of congregants streaming out in their Sunday best making that quiet corner into a place of joy. Five places of worship on five blocks, on one street, in one town. A tiny, narrow little scrap of the countless ways the world holds to find meaning and build community. That is, the different ways to be religious. 
It is a daily tour that reminds me of who a few of my neighbors are, an opportunity to taste just a sampling of what they are about. After nearly a year of living in this area, I have been inside only one of these five buildings. I have a long, long way to go to get to know even this one thin strip of my neighborhood. But I am still determined to try. Kurt Vonnegut, the author, agitator, humanist, and sometimes Unitarian Universalist, died this past week. So it goes. His books have been, are still, a major part of my life, my way of thinking, my way of being. In reflecting on his passing, I was reminded of a short scrap from one of them. It is a simple narrative of human life from beginning to end, told in Vonnegut's signature style of irreverent reverence. This is the way the story goes. God made mud. God got lonesome. So God said to some of the mud, sit up. See all I've made, the hills, the sea, the sky, the stars. And I was some of the mud that got to sit up and look around. Lucky me, lucky mud. I, mud, sat up and saw what a nice job God had done. Nice going, God. Nobody but you could have done it. I certainly couldn't have. I feel very unimportant compared to you. The only way I can feel the least bit important is to think of all the mud that didn't even get to sit up and look around. I got so much, and most mud got so little. Thank you for the honor. Now mud lies down again and goes to sleep. What memories for mud to have. What interesting other kinds of sitting up mud I met. I loved everything I saw. Good night. Mr. Vonnegut's playful, tender words are a reminder. What interesting other kinds of sitting up mud there are to meet in this world. More than can be known in all of our lives put together. But the opportunity to know and to be known, to mix together different thoughts and bodies and ways of being, and to make from the many one joyful noise, that is the great promise of this spiritual community. Our variety is what lends beauty to the covenant of this congregation, to dwell together in peace, to speak our truths in love. If we are all completely the same, those words have no meaning or purpose. But the world is blessed with difference. One ayah, one verse of the Quran describes it in this way. O people, we created you from the same source that you 
and made you into many peoples and many tribes that you might know each other. Difference makes for fruitful possibilities and intricacies in that interdependent web of all existence that we Unitarian Universalists like to talk about so much. I would go so far as to say that it is difference which allows us to realize our connections with each other. In homogeneity, in sameness, there is nothing to push us and demand that we grow our understandings of ourselves and one another. Conformity and uniformity among all members of a group is not an ideal I particularly value. And if you have come here this morning, I suspect that you feel similarly. But the need to know each other is not an unquestionable and universal good. It is good to appreciate that every being is connected to every other, but in affirming that, we may lose track of the quality of those connections. Two people may be connected by love. They may also be connected by fear. To make and sustain a life is a form of connection. To take a life is as well. There is a brokenness in human relationships, human relationships to humans and other living things. It may be found in the biases of our own thoughts and in the injustices of the society that we live and move in, that we make possible by our living and moving in it. Oppression prevents the interdependent web from spreading out evenly in all directions. It is not like a field of grass for everyone and everything. In describing the shape given to the world of life and relationships by classism, by racism, by heterosexism, ableism, and other systems of oppression, activist and author Elie Claire uses the metaphor of a mountain with privileged identities at the peak and marginalized identities at the base. We hear from the summit that the world is grand from up there, and we live down here at the bottom because we are lazy, stupid, weak, and ugly. We decide to climb that mountain or make a pact that our children will climb it. The climbing turns out to be unimaginably difficult. We are afraid. Every time we look ahead, we can find nothing remotely familiar or comfortable. We lose the trail. Our wheelchairs get stuck. We speak the wrong languages with the wrong accents, wear the wrong clothes, carry our bodies the wrong ways, ask the wrong questions, love the wrong people, and it's goddamn lonely up on that mountain. I have been thinking about that mountain these past few weeks. Passover, the Jewish tradition's feast of unleavened bread, ended this past week. The occasion is marked by the Seder, a meal at which all participants are commanded to imagine themselves as slaves, as ritual and imagination act out the story of Exodus from bondage 
in Egypt. It can be a revelatory experience. It has been for me. As participants by themselves and as a group become more aware of the freedom and captivity that mark their own lives and the society in which they live. We are called to ask what parts of me, what parts of those around me, what parts of those throughout the world are still held in bondage, still waiting to be set free. At our family Seder this year, my partner Sarah invited our guests to reflect on the following question. Given the injustice and the incompleteness of the world, what is our next step? What thing needs most to change in this life? Of course, this is a question with too many answers to count. It produces a wide-ranging conversation. In that moment, it was fueled by good food and a late hour and no small quantity of wine. I will leave it to you to carry that discussion forward out into coffee hour and beyond. But there was one answer offered which I want to share with you now. This is what one old dear friend had to say about how the world must change if we are all to keep living in it. What far too many, far too many lives are sorely lacking is the freedom to choose the time and manner of their vulnerability. When one person, one party, one nation commands power over another, the one has the means to force the other's vulnerability, to interrogate, to demand, to invade, and to occupy. Who are you? What are you? What was that supposed to mean? Where are the weapons of mass destruction? These are questions that the powerful are free to ask the weak. Vulnerability freely shared is a powerful gift. It is the defining quality of a relationship between equals. But the biases of people and systems give an unchosen vulnerability to some and an unearned insulation to others. Restoring the choice to be vulnerable is certainly not the only way of repairing this world, but it is particularly important in light of the need humans feel to know each other. To dwell together in peace requires more of us than tolerance. It takes more than even an earnest interest in others and a hunger to truly know them. Community, a just community, in this house and all over the world, requires instead the courage to not know and yet to abide, to accept difference without understanding so that we choose to reveal to each other of our tenderness. What we choose is freely chosen and freely received. This is one image of the world made whole, one promise of what we can be together. 
in this place. There are countless more. When we choose in turn to speak and to listen, perhaps we may teach them to each other. Amen.